Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Women were a vital part of American mobilization during World War I, so much so that by the end of the war it was impossible to claim women lacked the physical or mental fortitude to vote, or that you could make the world safe for democracy while disenfranchising a large part of the nation. The 19th Amendment giving American women the right to vote was duly ratified in 1920, but it didn't happen without a fight. Unlike their British counterparts, who largely suspended their public fight for suffrage to support the war effort, American suffrage groups splintered, with some temporarily pausing activism while others continued the fight. To discuss this continued fight for suffrage during World War I and its immediate aftermath, we are joined today by Tina Cassidy, author of Mr. President, How Long Must We Wait?, Alice Paul, Woodrow Wilson, and the Fight for the Right to Vote. Welcome. Thank you. So, Can you start us off with a sense of the state of women's suffrage in the United States right before World War I? And what is President Wilson's position on this issue? Suffrage momentum was building starting in 1912. And in January of 1913, literally the day before Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated, there was a uh, highly organized suffrage procession down Pennsylvania Avenue. And it was meant to put Wilson on notice that the women wanted him to pay attention to this issue during his term. I will say that Suffrage wasn't on Woodrow Wilson's radar at all. And in fact, when he got off the train at Pennsylvania Station and he looked around um, expecting to be (laughs) greeted by a friendly mob, uh, he asked instead, where are all the people? And the people were watching the suffrage procession. So tell us about Alice Paul. How does she emerge as one of the leaders of one part of the suffrage movement? So Alice Paul was a Quaker from New Jersey, and she spent time in England learning about social justice. And it was there that she saw the Pankhurst. These were the the leaders of the British suffrage movement, and they were what we would consider radical. They were being arrested and protesting and quite vigorous in their protests and their demands for the vote. Alice Paul joined them and, in fact, protested with them and was arrested and went on a hunger strike. But she learned a lot from the Pankhurst about how to be an activist. And she came back to the U.S. And when she got here, she realized that the suffrage movement was really stuck. It was sort of a lot of older women who had been taking the same approach for decades and not making any progress. And she thought it was time to change it up. And she joined the existing suffrage organization at that time called the National American Women's Suffrage Association, known as the National American for short. And she decided to work within that group to try to agitate for new approaches, including what became the pre-inaugural suffrage procession in D.C. President Wilson is initially fairly accessible to the suffragists. As time goes on, though, he seems more reluctant to take their meetings. Can you describe some of those early meetings? 
it's unfathomable to think today that you could show up at the White House, knock on the door and get a meeting with the president. But Woodrow Wilson had himself to blame for this in that he wanted to be a proponent of more openness in government and quite literally had an open door policy. So within a very short time after the suffrage procession, within two weeks, they went and and met with him. And he was quite placating, you know, basically heard them out, but gave them the proverbial tap on the head. And, you know, he said he was busy doing other things, including uh, reform on currency and tariffs. So he basically said, I have better things to do and sent them on their way. They had three meetings with him in succession in a very short amount of time. And he basically said, sorry, I can't do anything about this right now. So they took their case to Congress at that point. There are some very, very awkward meetings. And I think you capture that in the book. You mentioned Congress. So when does Alice Paul become convinced that an amendment to the Constitution is required for true success? And what is her strategy? She decided that a constitutional amendment was necessary when it was clear that Wilson said he could not help them anymore. After their three face-to-face meetings, you know, she realized she needed a different approach and that a constitutional amendment was, was what needed to happen. And the reason why she was proposing a constitutional amendment is because she knew that there were many states that would never approve of suffrage, uh, mostly in the South. So it was right after that third meeting with the White House that she went to Congress and got Senator George Chamberlain, who was a Democrat from Oregon, to introduce what would be a suffrage amendment that was almost word for word what the 19th Amendment ended up looking like when it was published eventually. Now, your book outlines some generational, philosophical, and even racial divisions within the American suffrage movement. And you write in particular about the divide between what you call a polite suffrage legacy and what Alice Paul was doing. Can you explain some of this friction and how much support does she have? As I mentioned earlier, Alice Paul was part of this National American Women's Suffrage Association. And from day one, when she advocated for the suffrage procession and did it, they all began to look at her like, oh, that's radical Alice Paul. You know, they thought, well, let's give it a try, see if the suffrage procession works, and then and then we'll reevaluate. But over time, it became clear, you know, that women who had been part of that group for a long time were committed to a state-level approach to voting rights. So they believed it should be up to each individual state to make their own decisions. You know, that's the so-called states' rights approach, right? And Alice Paul said, well, but if the South never agrees to, to go for voting rights for women, how is that okay? You know, there are, there are women throughout the South who are just like us, and they should have the same rights. So eventually, the two groups split, and Alice Paul formed her own group called the National Women's Party. But you also asked about, you know, some of the the racial divisions and other ways that the suffragists were split. You could actually see this happening during the suffrage procession, which Alice Paul organized it and invited Black women to attend as well as white women. In fact, she specifically invited Black women who belonged to sororities at historically Black colleges and universities and so forth. And so, you know, she was committed to this being 
uh, an open call for anyone who uh, wanted to be an activist for the vote. But once word got out that she invited Black women, I should say once word got out among the white leaders of the movement that she had invited Black women, they said, well, you have to uninvite them. This is not okay. There will be race riots. It's bad enough for marching. People think that's radical enough. And then you have a mixed procession, a mixed race procession, and uh, it will be all over for us. Alice Paul basically took a passive aggressive approach and just kind of let it ride. And and Black women did show up, including Ida B. Wells, who was a famous anti-lynching crusader uh, and and a remarkable journalist. And uh, Ida B. Wells was told to get to the back of the line when she went to take her place. So thankfully, Ida B. Wells stood her ground and marched and, and finished the march. To the extent that anyone finished the march, it ended up being a chaotic scene with men rushing the streets and being disruptive and people got taken away in ambulances and and so forth. But, you know, I think it just shows that it wasn't a monolithic movement. There were racial divides in the movement in the same way that there were racial divides in America. And there were strategic political divides within the movement, as you might expect as well. One of the things that really seems to frustrate Alice Paul and some of the other suffragists is that they see suffrage as something very doable for Wilson politically. In the election of 1912, the Democratic Party not only wins the White House with Wilson, but it wins control of the Senate and it keeps control of the House of Representatives and picks up something like 61 seats. In the 1916 election, this dominance narrows quite a bit. But at this point, it seems that you also have some Republicans at this point that support suffrage. So is Wilson the problem or is it more complicated than that? Ultimately, Wilson is the problem. He was a social conservative and he was from the South, born in Virginia, raised in Georgia. And the South did not want to give women the vote. They were busy trying to take it away from Black men who had gotten the vote with the 15th Amendment after the Civil War, which, by the way, women very easily could have been included in that voting rights amendment, and they weren't. And so, yeah, it is more complex in that most voters weren't focused on suffrage at this time. And it took the war and Alice Paul's very high profile campaign and a lot of grassroots effort to put it front and center um, as a national issue. Um, I definitely think that the war was a tipping point for that because people thought, how can we be fighting for democracy abroad when we don't even have a perfect democracy at home? Half of the population was disenfranchised. And of course, Black Americans were also being disenfranchised, although Black men were allowed to vote in accordance with the 15th Amendment, many laws had been put in place to strip them of that right, whether it was literacy test or poll tax. Um, Those are very deliberate attempts to disenfranchise them as well. When the U.S. enters World War I in April of 1917, Wilson works very, very hard to frame Americans' participation as a defense of democracy and freedom. How does Alice Paul take advantage of this rhetoric? And can you talk to us a little bit about the silent sentinels? Yes. So, I mean, the silent sentinels are an amazing thing that happens where they decided to take their case directly to the front lawn of the White House. And these women would march from the National Women's Party's headquarters down the street to Pennsylvania Avenue. And at first, uh, when the, when they first started this in, in January of 1917, they marched over there carrying suffrage flags. So they were carrying the suffrage colors and they just stood there silently. This was a silent 
protest. Uh, it should be noted that many of the early participants in the suffrage movement, whether it was Susan B. Anthony and also Alice Paul, they were Quakers and came from a tradition of silence, which is, uh, you know, silent contemplation, which is sort of interesting. But by the time uh, the U.S. entered the war in April, um, and then there was a, a group of Russian envoys coming to the White House, they decided to change up their strategy and they started carrying signs that were more like picket signs. And there was a one that had a very long message for the Russian envoys um, that uh, infuriated Wilson, as well as uh, many Americans. They just thought it was so unsavory to be confronting foreign diplomats during a time of war with the sign. And the sign basically said, President Wilson and Envoy Root are deceiving Russia when they say we're a democracy. Help us with the world war so that democracy may, may survive. We, the women of America, tell you that America is not a democracy. 20 million American women are denied the right to vote. President Wilson is the chief opponent of their national enfranchisement. Help us make this nation really free. Tell our government it must liberate its people before it can claim free Russia as an ally. So that was embarrassing. And I think you mentioned in the book at one point that there's a moment when the White House really wants to get these women away from the White House. And somebody tells Alice Paul, look, someone could assassinate the president. You're, you're drawing these crowds to the White House gate. You know, it could put him in danger. So could you please stop doing this? And I think she asked the White House, well, can I publicly release that information that we're stopping our protest to potentially save the life of the president? And the White House says, well, no, you can't. And so what she just decides to stay yeah, I mean, they they kept at it. And, you know, it got to the point where it, you know, it was drawing more and more attention, it became a real thing. And ultimately, Wilson had them arrested. And many of these women were locked up, they, they received jail sentences of up to six months, they were put in a workhouse in Virginia. And uh, they went on a hunger strike, and it became front page news because of the way they were being treated in jail and the fact that they were on hunger strikes and people started to really see the heavy hand of government in this when the women were protesting in a nonviolent way and, uh, you know, at a time of war. So, you know, not everyone believed that they should be protesting during a time of war. The British suffragists put their picket signs down when the English entered the First World War. But Alice Paul took a different approach here. And I think, and obviously it, it worked. It definitely tipped the scales. She was winning the PR war. Yeah, she's very talented at that. Yes. So how does the American public view suffrage at this point? Well, when the pickets first began outside the White House, many people thought that it was unsavory. You know, this was the first protest outside the White House ever. So it wasn't just the fact that it was a bunch of women doing this. And by the way, women didn't even walk down the street unattended at that time in history. You know, it was women had their place and even women talking about politics, let alone protesting, was unfathomable. So, you know, there were many reasons why people were initially reacting negatively to them protesting. But as the war went on and women realized, hey, we are literally here holding down the farm and, you know, they're sending their husbands and sons and brothers off to war. They needed rights to protect themselves and to have a voice in what was happening in the world. And I think a lot of people also realized that women deserve that right because they were holding up their fair share of the war effort. 
So public opinion certainly changed. I think probably also because so much of the war rhetoric was focused on democracy and the rights of people in Europe around, you know, being able to maintain their homeland and not being invaded and uh, and all of that. So it just rung hollow knowing that women couldn't vote here too. In 1918, Wilson goes before the Senate and he asks it to support an amendment for suffrage. What has moved him to this point? Is it public opinion? Is it women's contributions to the war effort? Or is it something else? It's politics. He really saw that people's opinions had changed on suffrage. And he was very concerned that if he looked like he was still an opponent of suffrage, that his party, the Democratic Party, would uh, fail in the midterms. So. Just to clarify, at this time in history, Democrats were the more socially conservative party than the Republican Party, and Republicans were much more in favor of it and, you know, were really trying to elevate their chances of winning by supporting suffrage. So it it was very much about the election. It's such a complicated political battle. Can you walk us through the passage and then ratification of the 19th Amendment? First, the House of Representatives passed the amendment 304 to 89, and then the Senate passed it 56 to 25. Once that happened, it had to go to the states for ratification. And this is where Alice Paul's political strategy came into play. She had essentially developed a grassroots campaign across the country and had representatives on the ground in every state where a vote was going to happen. Also, if you remember, the National American Women's Suffrage Association was focused on a state level voting rights approval strategy. So they also had people on the ground in every state working on this issue. So both groups really came together in this last leg to ensure that states ratified the what would be the 19th Amendment. So what happened next was they needed 36 states, which was three quarters of all the states for um, for ratification. You know, it went through Wisconsin. Mich- technically, Wisconsin was the first state to ratify the 19th Amendment. Michigan, Illinois, they all voted yes on the same day in June of, of uh, 1920. And then there was another burst with New York, Ohio, Kansas, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Texas, All of this was happening in June while Woodrow Wilson was signing the Treaty of Versailles, by the way. So there was a lot happening in the world. And then the vote came to Georgia and Georgia rejected it, even though Wilson had appealed to them. It was he felt like it was his home state. He said, look, we really don't want to look like the opposition here. And and they ignored it. Um, Then it went on to Arkansas, Montana, Ohio, Missouri, Nebraska, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Utah. Alabama, Virginia, all said yes, except for Alabama and Virginia. Then California said yes, as did Maine, North Dakota, Colorado. Five more states in January, five more states in March. And then, you know, there was another handful, but essentially it all comes down to Tennessee being the last state to ratify the vote. And it all, that all came down to one man's vote and his name was Byrne. Uh, And he changed his vote when he received a letter from his mother on his desk in the chamber of the legislature, basically to asking him to be a good boy and vote for suffrage. 
it was very dramatic ending to the story, but it is true. Pretty incredible. Yeah. So do you believe that World War I accelerated women's suffrage in the United States? Would it have happened when it happened, all political considerations aside, if there had not been that experience of World War I? I think it would have happened eventually. It's hard to know exactly when it would have happened, but World War I absolutely accelerated the push. And frankly, it's shocking that it took America so long to get to that point. You know, it was so many decades after the first women's convention at Seneca Falls. It was a long time after Black men got the vote after the Civil War. And so, yeah, it definitely accelerated it. And yet, what took so long? Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.